Let's talk about Satan, angels, and demons. Here we go. Uh, <laughs> we're doing it. Um, there, there was a big storm. I think this was a few months ago. Might have been in the summer. I actually don't remember when it was. I was actually at a lunch. It was on a Sunday, but then I was driving back, and all of a sudden, have you ever had this happen where, like, out of nowhere, a storm comes in, and you weren't expecting it at all? This happened recently to me, and, and one of the things that was interesting is when it started, there wasn't any rain. All there was was just crazy wind. And wind is very powerful. So what happened is um, I, was, I was going by a house, and as I was driving by, um, I could see kind of through the back. And this wind was so powerful that it carried chairs and tables and all sorts of stuff in the backyard into the pool. And things were breaking. I mean, it was crazy. And what was interesting is that you can't see the wind, right? Like wind is not something that is visible, but you do see the effects of the wind. We see that all the time. And I tell you that because that's, that's true of a lot of things, right? It's true of germs. Okay. Germs are something that you can't necessarily see, but they're having a huge effect. All you have to do is like, look at your schools over the past two weeks, right? Like people are sick and you don't really, you can't see the things that are causing the sickness, but they are causing the sickness. They're having this effect on you. Um, a trap is like that. And you try to trap an animal or something like that, if you're one of those people, then um, you're, you're trying to do something that's not visible to them. Like that's the point of a trap. You can't see it, but it has an effect on you. And, and I say that because invisible things, things that you can't see, often impact visible things in very powerful ways. And the same thing is true of the spiritual life. The same thing is true of, of following God, what scripture teaches us is there is this unseen spiritual realm that's having dramatic effects on each of our lives, whether we're aware of it or not. Okay, Paul tells us there's this spiritual battle that's going on that we're not always seeing. And it's not between people and other people. It's between Satan and forces of evil that are fighting against God and his people. Like, well, that sounds like you made that up. Well, this is Ephesians 6, verse 12. I have a ton of scripture today. And so Billy's going to do his best. This is what Paul says. He says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We don't wrestle against visible things that we can see. We wrestle against rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And we don't think about that a lot, right? But that's what Paul's telling us is that we, this is who we're up against. Now the word wrestle there. It refers to, in the Greek times, the oldest form of hand-to-hand combat. And so what the goal was in wrestling in that time period was to knock someone on their back. That's what you were trying to accomplish. And so that's what he's getting at, is that there's a real enemy. There are spiritual forces that's trying to knock you on your back. It's trying to knock you off certain grounds. And we're going to talk about what that ground is in a little bit. He wants to knock you off very specific ground. Okay, we're going to talk about that. Um, Oftentimes, though, we don't live in the awareness that this is what's happening, right? Like how many of us one day last week thought about this, right? Like a lot of us don't. Like we just live our lives and we don't even think about, hey, there's a spiritual battle. There's a cosmic war that's taking place. It's invisible a lot of times, but it's having visible effects. But the problem is if we don't think about it, um, you're at your most vulnerable when you're not expecting an attack to come to you. That's just how anything is, okay, in anything, whether it's football, whether it's hunting, whether it's anything, whether it's chess. I mean, you are at your most vulnerable when you're not expecting 
an attack. In, in his introduction to the screw tape letters, this is what C.S. Lewis says. I'm going to quote this twice today. I could quote it like eight times. I'm just going to quote it twice. He says this. He says, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. So he's like, hey, there's two um, sides that people err on when it comes to Satan, demons, and angels. One is to almost be too obsessed with them to where like you get a flat tire and you're like, Satan did that. You know, like everything that happens to you is Satan. Okay. And you kind of have this unhealthy obsession. Uh, but the other end is to not think about them enough. And if you're like me, I think a lot of us err on that side. I think we err more on the side of not really thinking enough about them. When I was in Uganda as a junior in college, um, one of my friends got to stand up and he got to, to speak, and I did too, um, to a group of Ugandan Christians. That's a village in, in Africa is where we were. And this kind of remote village in Africa is a pretty interesting area and very underdeveloped, like that kind of thing. And so I get up there and I have this brilliant talk planned, you know, as usual, you know, and I get up there and I'm like, this is going to blow these Ugandans out of their minds. Like they're going to be like, wow, like these Americans, they can bring it, you know? And I get up there and like no one reacted. I was just kind of like, really? Like that was great. I thought that was genius. And, uh, and so I kind of sat down humbled and, um, and then my friend named Cole, he gets up there and he starts talking about stuff and kind of same thing. They're not really reacting at all. And I was like, this is a rough crowd. And, um, and then he makes this one comment. It was really interesting. I'll never forget this. He makes this one comment and it's through a translator. And he basically says, um, Satan is, is a real enemy, but Christ is more powerful than Satan. That's all he says. And they just erupted in applause. I mean, freaked out in joy and celebration. And I was just sitting there like, that's so interesting. So I, I investigated this. I wanted to figure out like why of all the things we said, was that the thing that got them going? Okay. And what it was is that in places like that in the world, there's a huge awareness of these cosmic realities. When I, when we were in Senegal this summer, um, I, Mikey and me, we were on a boat with Jerry, right? And Jerry was talking to us about how in Senegal, there's very visible demonic activity. Like you will see demonic things happening. It's very much known when you go to other contexts that are less developed, that that's the way that it works. And so they're very aware of this. They're very aware of this. So the reality of Jesus being more powerful stands out to them. However, in America, and this is what I want you to hear that is really important. I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just telling it like it is, is that the, the demonic world and the influences of these cosmic powers is still very powerful. It's just not as evident. It's way more shielded. And it's shielded because we're more of a developed nation. So the way that the, the demonic powers are at work are through things like power structures, government, through materialism, because they don't have to be as evident. They can work more behind the scenes. And so these battles are very real in America. They're just far more shielded. And so what that does is it makes us think that they're not happening. And so we don't think about them a lot. And so what today is, is going to be largely, um, it, it's kind of a wake-up call. It's like, hey, there's a battle going on. Wake up. What do we do about it? And so today we're going to talk about Satan, angels, and demons. We're in the middle of the series on doctrine. It's eight beliefs, eight doctrines. Every high schooler should know we've talked about scripture. We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about creation. Ross did that last week. And what we're trying to do is, is not just learn these things so we can be smarter. We want to talk about what do these have to do with our lives. And so if you're like, man, 
What do angels and demons have to do with being a high schooler today? I'm going to show you in a second. There's, there's, it has a lot to do with being a high schooler today. So there's three things we're going to talk about today. I've got three questions we're going to ask. The first one's going to be a little more info heavy, okay? But then the next two are going to be very relevant to your life. So here's the questions. Who are they? Where did they come from? It's the first question. We've got to know what we're dealing with here. Number two, what are they doing right now? Like in this moment, what are they trying to accomplish? What are they doing? Okay, that's huge. And then number three, what do we do about it? What do we do about that? Okay, that's where we're headed. So who are they? Where do they come from? Let me set it up like this. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of, of these movies. I'm going to give you two that stand out to me. One's the best, one of the best ones I've ever seen. Have you ever heard of The Prestige? It's like a magician movie. It's by Christopher Nolan, guy that did the Batman movies. You need to go see that this week. It's wild. Um, it's called The Prestige. Okay, another movie, probably haven't seen this, it's called The Usual Suspects. Have you ever heard of that one? Okay, great. Awesome. Well, at the end of those movies, you don't need to see them for this point to make sense. They're kind of like mysteries. Like you don't really know what's happening. And there's kind of this vibe of like, what, how are we, how is this happening? The things that are happening in the plot. And at the end of the movie, the illusionist does this too. If you've ever seen that, you probably haven't. Okay. But at the end of that movie as well, there, there's a scene at the end of each of these movies that basically like goes back kind of in time. And it shows you different angles of scenes that happen during the movie. And then it all makes sense. You're like, oh my gosh, like I totally get how we got here. There's this major plot twist in each of those three movies. They, the whole movie you're not even aware of. But at the end of it, you're like, oh my gosh, this scene with the girl, like I didn't even think about, like that's what was happening. Okay, and so you look back on the movie and you see all of these characters and roles that were doing things that you didn't even realize they were doing. And so I say that because that's how the Bible is. That's how this story of scripture is, is that a lot of times we think of it, when we think of the story, we think of God and humans, like that's the cast. But also in the cast, if you put on the lens of scripture, there's another character and it's the, it's the, peop, it's the uh, spiritual beings called angels and demons. And so I say that because if we're going to have an accurate understanding of the whole story, we have to understand that they're playing a role in the story. And so in Genesis, the first time that angels are actually mentioned, this is so interesting. I looked up this week, every single place in scripture where angels and demons were mentioned really like took a long time because it was a wild ride. But in Genesis, like 16, I think it's the first time the writer just like throws it out there. Like it's no big deal. It's just like, yep, two angels visited Abraham. And you're just like, what? Like, where did they come from? And so I say that because in scripture, there's just an assumption that angels and demons are just a part of the story. Like the biblical writers just saw the story as angels and demons are just a part of it. Okay, look at 1 Timothy 5.21. Let me just give you an example. Okay, this is Paul encouraging Timothy. He's going to say a line in there that no one ever talks about. Okay, watch this. In the presence of God, that makes sense, right? The presence of Christ Jesus, that makes sense. And of the elect angels. Like what? He just drops that in there. I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. He's like, hey, in the presence of God and Jesus. Oh, and the angels. Okay, he just throws that in there. We're not going to talk about what the elect angels means right now. We don't have time. Okay, Hebrews 13, 2. Check out this line. This is kind of wild. No one ever talks about this verse. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Like, that makes sense. Like, be hospitable to strangers. In that time period, um, a lot of times people were fleeing and so they needed a safe place to go. And this is what he says, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. What does that mean? It means that, hey, show hospitality to people. You don't know if the person in your presence is really an angel. That's what he's saying. Okay, that's crazy. 
But that's just the biblical world, is the way that they saw the story is that angels were a part of it. Now, what is an angel? An angel means messenger. That's what the word means. And so one thing they do is they bring messages from God to people. That's what happens to Abraham. It happens to Mary, if you know that story, when she's going to give birth to Jesus. Okay, they're also sent on missions for God. And so in Acts, angels are sent to rescue Peter from prison. So they're messengers. They're also sent on missions from God, for God. Now, I don't have uh, time to tell you stories, but I've got some crazy stories in my own life from about kind of weird messengers. Okay, now we don't have time to go into that, but that's one of the things angels do. Now, in Hebrews 1.14, we don't have a lot of verses about what angels do, but this is what the writer asks about angels. He says, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And so what angels do is they are a part of God's purposes. He is using them in his story to save people. Angels cannot be saved. There's a verse in Timothy that says when angels fall, when they rebel against God, that's it. They do not have an opportunity to be saved. But the ones that are with God, they praise God all the time and they rejoice when sinners are saved. But the problem is that not all angels are used for this purpose. Not all angels engage in this purpose. There was a rebellion in heaven, most likely between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Okay, where in Genesis 3, you have the snake, the serpent that tempts and deceives Adam and Eve. And you get this sense that ah, that snake's more than just like a thing that's slithering on the ground. Like there's some force of evil behind it. Now in Ezekiel 28, this is in verse 12, I think you get a glimpse, a little, a little insight into what happened with Satan. Where did he come from? Now some people don't believe that that's what these verses referred to. I think that they do. Because in the prophet's world, a lot of times they would see kings and rulers as being um, influenced by Satan and demons. And so I think there's a parallel here to the king of Tyre, who was a bad king in that time period, and Satan. So this is what happens. Ezekiel 28. How many of you have ever been to Ezekiel 28? Okay, welcome to it. Here we go. Son of man, raise a lamentation over the king of Tyre. Say to him, thus says the Lord God, you were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. We're going to keep going a little bit here. You were in Eden, the garden of Eden. Okay, now this is where you start going. I don't know that the king of Tyre was ever in the Garden of Eden. So I think this might be referring to somebody else. Okay, every precious stone was your covering. I'm not going to read all the stones. Those are all precious stones. And crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I always say that wrong. I placed you. You were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire. You walked. Okay, and if you keep going... We're not going to keep going, but what you find is that whoever's being described here, his pride, his self-focus caused him to rebel against God. And so in 1 Timothy um, 3, 6, this is one thing you see too. There's an encouragement on who should be a leader in the church. He must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and what? Fall into the condemnation of the devil. And what people say is that what this is referring to is that the condemnation that Satan fell into was being puffed up with conceit and being puffed up with pride. That's what happened. And so if you're like, okay, wait, what does that have to do with anything? Here's what you need to hear. Is that what happened with Satan is that, again, created to be a special angel to have an important role, but he did not want to submit to God's authority. He became filled up with pride 
he became self-focused, and so he rebelled against God, and a group of other angels joined him, and those are the demons. They were not satisfied with the status that God gave them, and so they wanted a higher status. They wanted to be God, and now when you read Scripture, you see they are at work behind human corrupt structures and at a personal level trying to exploit our greed, sin, and selfishness. They want to drag us back into the pain and brokenness of sin because they oppose God's purposes. That's what they're doing. So those are angels, those are demons, those are Satan. So if you're like, okay, what? That's crazy. That's, that's just information. That's interesting, whatever. Or you're like, that's really like trippy right now. What's going on? What are they doing right now? That's the question, okay? In other words, what's their goal? This is when it's going to matter for us today. Now, sorry to use a sports illustration. I promised I was going to do less of this, but not today. Um, in the Super Bowl a few years ago, remember this? I think it was the, I can't remember who the Patriots were playing. Um, it might have been the Seahawks. But there was an interception thrown, like on the goal line, that Malcolm Butler caught. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? Okay, so if you go back, he, he caught the game-winning interception on the goal line. It was a little slant route. He read it perfectly. He ran in and he picked it off and the Patriots won. Tom Brady was freaking out. I was excited too, just you know, throwing that out there. And then what happened was, if you talk to him post-game, what he said was that that week in practice, they had practiced that play hundreds of times on the goal line. Like they saw it on film. They knew that that was the play they were going to run. And so he knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what was coming. And the reason that's important is because if we're going to have any shot in this spiritual battle, we have to know what they're, how they're trying to attack us. And what I'm going to show you is it's different than what a lot of us think. If we want to know how to play in this battle, we've got to know how they're trying to attack us. Okay, the truth of Scripture is that we have a real enemy who's seeking to destroy us. This is 1 Peter 5.8. You may have heard this. It says, Your adversary, the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And so what this means, there's a process here. You see this in James 1, 13 to 15 also, is that this is what happens. The enemy, he seeks you out, he isolates you, and then he tries to devour you. And the way he does that is through progressively tempting you through things that are enticing. So the way that I like to say this is he does not use broccoli to tempt us. He uses chocolate cake. In other words, he's not going to tempt you through things that aren't appealing to you. He's going to use things that look really good to you. Like that tastes good. That looks good. That's going to make sense. But the key is he wants to isolate you. He wants to get you away from other Christians. He wants to tell you that that thing you're struggling with is something that you can't tell anyone else about. That's what he wants you to believe is that the thing you're dealing with, the thing that you're tempted with is something you can't tell anyone else about. That's exactly what he is hoping that you believe, okay? Um, and so what that means is that the temptations that he's going to throw at you are not just about behavior. So a lot of us think, oh, Satan just wants me to like rob a bank and kill someone and get drunk, okay? No, what he wants you to do is believe lies. That's what he's trying to do. And there's three in particular that he's going to try to do. He's trying to attack us at all times. And these are three things that all of us are going to deal with. So I want to show these to you. Um, I think I have these three things, Okay. The temptation to believe that God is not good. I'm going to explain all these. The temptation to live for self and the temptation to forget the gospel. So let me just blow through these real quick. Okay, the temptation to believe that God is not good. This was the original temptation 
in Genesis 3.1 when the serpent asked Eve, hey, did God really say that you shouldn't do that? You see what that question is? He's trying to get Eve to doubt God's goodness. He's trying to get Eve to doubt if God's word is actually true. So the first sin came from Adam and Eve being deceived into thinking that God is not good, that his word is not true, and that the good life is not found in listening to him in his ways. And therefore, his ways will not ultimately lead to my joy into my flourishing. Okay, so if you're like me, one of the things of human nature is that we regularly return to things that hurt us. We regularly return to things that hurt us. I, when I, um, I used to eat at Freebirds a lot, burrito place. It's, number, it's now number three on the, on the list. Okay, sorry to them. But they used to have this, they still have it actually. It's called death sauce. Have you ever heard of this? It's their hot sauce. And it is, it's called death sauce for a reason. It has this big warning on the bottle. And I really like hot sauce. And so I would eat there with one of my really good friends. And I would just load up the hot, the death sauce. Okay, and every time he'd be like, Will, you're going to regret that. And I'm like, no, 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 I love it. It's great. I love spicy. And I start eating. I'm like, it's fine this time. Like my taste buds have developed. And all of a sudden I start sweating and I'm in so much physical pain that I can't even enjoy the meal. And I'm like drinking water and water makes it worse, you know. And then we'd get there the next time and I'd be like, I grabbed the death sauce bottle. And he's like, well, I'm telling you right now, like you remember last time what happened with the death sauce? I'm like, no, 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 this is a new time, new time. And I would do it. And so what he started to do is when we go to Freebirds, he will grab the death sauce bottle and he'll put it up. He's like, I'm not letting you grab the death sauce anymore. Okay, but this is what we do. It's like we naturally go back and go back and go back to things that will hurt us. Okay, for some of you, it might be, um, it might be unhealthy relationships. For some of you, it might be porn. For some of you, it might be things you do on weekends. For some of you, it might be going back to social media to... to try to get someone to like you again. I mean, we can fill it in with whatever we want, but the human nature is to return to things that actually hurt us. And it's rooted in this belief that God's not good. Like, oh man, death sauce, it's so good. It's like, no, 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 my friend's lovingly saying, it looks good, but it's not, it's gonna hurt you. Like you're believing something that's not true. And we do this with God all the time. We believe that his ways are not good for us. Okay, the second temptation is to live for self. And so God created us to live for him and for other people. But sin turns us inward. So if you remember in Ecclesiastes 2, promise we're not going to go back there for very long, but Solomon, the word that he repeats over and over again in his experiment, you remember what it is? He says, I, me, myself, over and over and over again. And so whether it's social media, whether it's chasing success, whether it's experiencing pleasure, the enemy tempts us away constantly from God by feeding us the lie that life is a story about us. And so it says, hey, take yourself, put yourself at the center of the universe and that's gonna satisfy you. That is what our world tells us all the time. And the enemy is behind that. Now, this is fascinating. I did a deep dive this week into the church of Satan. Don't recommend it. I'm not considering it, okay? But I looked into it. And this is what uh, a guy who's very high up in the church of Satan, this is what he says. You ready for this? He says, we see the universe, talking about Satanist, we see the universe as being indifferent to us, so all morals and values are subjective human constructions. Here's the line. Our position is to be self-centered, with ourselves being the most important person, the God of our universe. So we are sometimes said to worship ourselves. See what he's saying? Satanism's not about Satan. Satanism's about worshiping yourself. 
That's what they say, is that the guy who's leading the church of Satan, one of the main leaders is saying, Satanism is all about self. And so that's what the satanic spirit is. That's what demonic spirit is. It's not this weird thing where we're dancing around a fire, asking Satan to do crazy stuff. Like, that's what we think of. That's not what it is. The satanic spirit, the demonic spirit, is simply trying to get you to put yourself first. That's what he's trying to do. Okay, and we miss that all the time. That's what he's trying to do. And so Satan loves dysfunctional relationships. Satan loves it. I've seen this in churches so many times. Every ministry I've been in, there's, I've seen conflicts that are like not explainable. You're like, how are these people fighting? And what you know is, that, is what's happening is that there's a real enemy trying to get you to fight people. Like Satan does not want us to be united. And so maybe for you, what it looks like to oppose him is to go reconcile with the person that you're fighting with, to forgive the person that you're mad at. Because Satan wants you to put yourself first. Okay, now there's this guy who was a pastor in Philadelphia. And he asked this question. And he said, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Okay, there's a Presbyterian minister, Donald Gray Barnhouse. This is what he said. Now, if you think of that, if Satan took control of Dallas, what would it look like? You'd be like, man, there'd be like drugs everywhere and people be killing each other. It'd be like wild, you know. And um, this is what he said. You ready for this? Have y'all heard this quote? Some of you are looking at it like you've heard this. You, there's no way you've heard this quote. He said, all the bars would be closed. Pornography would be banished. Pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smile at each other. There would be no swearing. The children would say yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday. You're like, what? But then he adds this line. He says, where Christ is not preached. Okay. And so what he's getting at is that you can live for self through immorality but you can also live for self by thinking you're a really good person who doesn't need Jesus. It makes no difference to Satan. He doesn't care at all whether your way of living for self is immorality or whether it's thinking you're such a good Christian and good person, but you don't actually need Jesus. You don't actually live in a relationship with him. Satan will take it either way. He just wants you to put yourself first. Okay, third one is this, and we're almost done, the temptation to forget the gospel. One of the titles that Satan has given is the accuser. So he accuses you of your sin. So one of his chief goals is to make you feel terrible. Like he wants to tell you over and over again, you're a sinner, you're a sinner, you're bad. Like that thing you did, you should be ashamed of that. That thought you had, like you can't tell anyone that. Like God's ashamed of you. Like his, he doesn't love you because of that. He wants to tell you over and over again of that. And so this manifests itself and that a lot of us, we try to present this perfect image to other people. We try to hide our weaknesses and flaws. We try to compare ourselves to others. And what Satan's trying to do is to get us to forget about God's love, mercy, grace, and forgiveness and acceptance in the gospel. In the screw tape letters, this is one of the quotes that the, the, the master demon has um, for his, the demon he's counseling. He says, it's funny how mortals always picture us as putting things into their minds. In reality, our best work is done by keeping things out. And so what the enemy wants to do is he wants to keep the gospel out of your mind. He doesn't want you to think about how much God loves you. He doesn't want you to think about that Jesus went to a cross for you. He wants us to focus all of our attention on ourselves, our situations, our sins, our struggles, and not look at our Savior. That really sounded good, and that wasn't on purpose. Okay, all right, so here's the question. What do we do about it? I'm going to end with this. What do we do about it? And then SP is going to come up and sing another song. Um, there's a movie, another movie you haven't seen, guarantee. If you haven't seen those, you've not seen this one. It's called Behind Enemy Lines. Have y'all seen it? No? 
You've seen it? Mason's seen it? Yes. Owen Wilson. Shout out to you, Mason. Great movie. And basically what's happening is they're like flying. They, they, um, there's two guys, Owen Wilson being one of them. His voice is now in my head now, which is funny. But they get on this mission that they're kind of like making fun of them because they were like late to something. They fly over this place and turns out like really bad stuff is going on there. Their plane gets shot down and all of a sudden they're behind enemy lines. Okay, so the whole movie is about them getting rescued. And so what happens is, is he goes from being on this Christmas funny, like eh, flying the plane to, oh, no, no, no. I'm in a battleground all of a sudden where people are trying to kill me. And it changes how he lives. He's no longer living for comfort. He's living on a mission knowing that there's a real battle. But here's the thing is that he couldn't save himself. He needed people to come outside of himself and rescue him. That was his only hope. And so I tell you that because here's the reality. And this is what I want you to hear if you don't hear anything else. Is that the humbling truth is when I say, what do we do about this? You ready for this? You can't do anything about it. And neither can I. And what people will try to do is give you like the six tips on how to, you know, whatever. And the truth is that we're powerless to defeat this enemy. If I put a lion in the room, like Satan's compared to a lion, I locked the doors and I said, go get him, you know, defeat him. Okay, how would that go for us? Okay, now I feel good about myself, you know, because I, you know, you know the strength I have. But a lot of us, and no, I'm kidding, I don't feel good about anybody. Like that lion is going to devour us. We're powerless. And the truth is that every single one of us gives into temptation, right? Like think about the last week. Where did you give into temptation? It could be in so many different areas. For me, I know where I gave into temptation and this creates a sense of desperation. We're like, all of us fail. Like we can't defeat this enemy. This enemy is too big for us. No one can overpower. But here's the good news of the gospel is that there's somebody who did succeed where we failed. In Matthew 4, Jesus is tempted by Satan in all the ways we are, and he did not give in. Even though he was tempted throughout his life, just as we are, he lived a perfect life of obedience. And in the greatest moment of suffering and temptation the world has ever seen on the cross, he did not walk away from it, but he stayed faithful to the mission that he was called to. Why did he do that? Because he obeyed God perfectly for you and me, and he loved you and me. He wanted to come and get you and me. And this is what Colossians 2, 12 through 15 says. It says, you were dead in your trespasses. You can't save yourself, but God made alive together with him, having forgiven all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt. So everything you've done, all the debt you owe, the thing you regret, the thing that you don't want to tell anyone, Jesus canceled that on the cross. That he set aside, he nailed it to the cross. And then look at this line that no one ever talks about. Okay, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put them to open shame. Think about that. Like the enemy that's been in your face all week, right? Jesus put him to shame on the cross by triumphing over them. Jesus defeated the enemy. Now that enemy is still living. He's still tempting you, okay? But he has resources to give you, Jesus does, that we can't have for ourselves. So Jesus defeated the enemy. He forgives sinners. He covers with his perfect righteousness people like you and me, who fail all the time to stand firm in temptation. That's why the old hymn, it's my favorite line in a hymn. It says, well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousands more. My God, he knoweth none. And so you may know all of your sins. The accuser is trying to tell you about them, but God doesn't know any of them because he's washed them completely away. And here's the truth is that only when you get this, only when this truth sinks deep into you, will you actually have the ability 
to stand firm in temptation. Is Ephesians 6, where Paul's talking about the armor of God. We misinterpret that all the time. Every single piece of the armor of God is a different element of the gospel, of what Jesus did on the cross. And so what Paul's saying is that if you want to defeat the enemy, realize that you can't, but realize that you're standing on ground that Jesus already won for you. And so the way to defeat the enemy is to not forget the gospel. You go back to the gospel every single time. If you think about those three lies, the gospel is the ultimate proof that God is good and he works for our best interest, even when it doesn't make sense to you. The gospel is the ultimate healer of pride because you see Jesus's humility. The gospel is the ultimate weapon against the accuser's taunts against you because it fixes your eyes on Jesus and what he did. The gospel is the thing that transforms you, okay? And so what I want you to think about as SP comes back up here, we're going to sing one more song. This is a song by Phil Wickham. It's called Battle Belongs. You may have heard it. You may not have. If you haven't heard it, I just want you to think about the, what we're singing. Um, what, what we're doing here is we're, we're going to sing that the battle belongs to God. The battle does not belong to us. So when you're here today, I just want you to think about just for a second as she kind of gets set up here that think about where you felt like the enemy was just getting after you this week. Um, I've gotten the sense as I've talked to high schoolers throughout the week that there can be just a lot of exhaustion. Like the tempter has just been at it. And, and you, so you might be in here today and you're like, man, this particular area of my life is the thing where the enemy was just getting after me this week. And so what I just want to encourage you with is as we sing this song, I want you to lay that before him and realize that the battle belongs to him. He forgave all your sins on the cross and he can give you the strength and the power that you need for the battles that you're fighting. Okay, if you have anything in your life that you want to talk about, we'd love to talk to you about that. We have a real enemy, but we have a better savior. God, we thank you for this truth. We thank you that you tell us things that are real. Sometimes these are things that don't make sense to us. They're confusing, but your scripture presents the fact that there is a real spiritual battle going on, but it works itself out in practical ways in our lives. So Lord, as we sing this song, as, as we're reminded about the gospel, Lord, I just pray that we would put these battles in your hands. We thank you that Jesus already won the battle for us. We thank you that he gives us what we need today as we stand firm in the gospel on the ground he already won in these areas in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.